I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. During the Great Depression, my grandfather, Austin Clifford McInerney, was insulted by a man named Leo French. Specifically, Mr. French insulted my grandfather's suit. What did he say? Doesn't really matter. My grandfather told my father that story, and my father told me, and now I'm telling it to you. The stories that I know about the McInerney family are just little bits and pieces. I know they came from County Clare, Ireland, and then went to Lake City, Minnesota, and then South Minneapolis. I know what I know about Leo French, but, I mean, how much do I even know about my Irish Catholic family history? Not much. And I only know any of this because before he died, my dad did what a lot of dads do. He got really into Ancestry.com. Really into it. At one point in his Ancestry.com journey, my dad was talking with his aunt, who was like a million years old, and he was asking her about the McInerney family history, and she said she didn't know anything because when she was growing up, nobody cared about old people, and nobody cared about the past. Well, Ga is a person who does care about the past. My name is Ga Va. Ga is Hmong. That's H-M-O-N-G. Not Hmong, everyone. Hmong. The Hmong are an ethnic group in Southeast Asia, including China, Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, Cambodia, Myanmar. Hmong people have no country of their own. Minnesota, where we live, has the second largest population of American Hmong people. So go us. Woo! So Ga is not Irish Catholic, but her kids kind of are. My husband is mostly German and mostly Irish. And so I try to teach them about German-Irish culture, too. And and so, like, I'm teaching them all this stuff about being Hmong. And I feel like I have a responsibility to teach them about Ireland, too. And, and like, the Rhyme area where their grandfather is from. And so I, I, I'm trying to do this, too. So we, like, make leprechaun catchers and we talk about Oktoberfest and... I just, I don't know if I'm doing a good job. Now, according to Ancestry.com, I am like 99% Irish and I have never made a leprechaun catcher. And this year I forgot entirely about St. Patrick's Day. Just slipped right by. So, yeah, God's doing a good job. Now, aside from teaching her kids about their German slash Irish heritage, God wants to make sure her kids also know about her parents and her ancestors, and where she came from, which is the country of Laos. So if you think about Laos, it's kind of like a long hot dog wiener. That's like a slash backward sign, you know, kind of slanted in Southeast Asia. So it's a landlocked country. And so at that very top is really the like intersection of the Vietnam and China And that's where my father's family is from, is from that little area. And that's really like where a lot of the war occurred. The war is, of course, uh, the communist conflict in Southeast Asia. We call our part of it here in the U.S. the Vietnam War because officially that's where the U.S. engaged in the 60s and 70s. But Vietnam is not exclusively where the war was fought. The places where it was fought outside of that official theater of war became known as the Secret War. That Secret War included Laos, where Ga knows her father, Pao Ying Vang, was born in 1950. 
Laos is where Ga's family lived. And Laos is where her father's heroic story unfolded. The story that Ga had always been retelling. The story she had internalized and made her own. And it is so good. My dad was a young man in school. I think it would be the equivalent of high school in the United States. And as he is at this boarding school with other prominent, I don't want to say wealthy, because certainly my dad wasn't wealthy, but as he was at this exclusive school, this war, you know, was raging on. In fact, it had raged before he even went to school. And then one day, some soldiers come to his school with guns and threaten to kill all the teachers and tell the students that they need to get on these, like, trucks. And they do. They comply. They're scared to death. The trucks take them to a labor camp, and he's put in hard labor. Um, he was very sad, very lonely. I and mean, he, people were dying of malnutrition. People were dying of disease. People were just being killed um, for minor infractions. So I heard that he was scared to death. No. Somehow, word of the kidnapping got back to Ga's grandfather back in the village, and he makes the trek to the city to investigate, and he learned that the Patet Lao, the Laotian Communist Party who was working with the North Vietnamese, they'd come to the school because, I mean, they hated intellectuals and also because students must have families with money. So Ga's grandfather, he's not a rich man. He's a farmer, but he starts paying people off. He finds out about the labor camp and... He organized bribes for the guards. And the plan is they're going to look the other way on a particular night so his son could escape. Everything was as it was supposed to be. The plan was hatched. The money was handed off. And then on that particular night, my father decided that he was going to take his, like, six closest friends with him, you know, who were also in this labor camp. Okay, that's a big last-minute change. Like, a single prisoner, that's one thing. But a group of seven... The guards can't ignore that, so they're forced to chase the fleeing prisoners. I don't know if it was like a moonless night or I don't know if it was a moon-filled night, but I mean, they're, you know, running through the jungles and I've got this vision of my head like apocalypse now, you know, like people running through the jungle. I don't know. I just feel like I see in my head like black and green everywhere. And I see my dad as a young man, like, you know, with no shoes, you know, and tattered clothes with like six other starving, you know, prisoners like running through the jungle. Anyway, somehow he ends up like in this like makeshift landing strip. So it's a clearing in the jungle and there's actually a a small plane. And my dad sees this European looking man. So my dad's like running to this person. My dad's like, we got to get out. They're behind us. Ga's father yells this to the white man in the colonial language of Laos, which is French. And the man doesn't answer, and the prisoners keep running. They're running, and they're running, and the guards are running. They're gaining on them. So Ga's father tries again with the language of the most recent colonial power. This time, he tries yelling in English. So my dad's like, they're behind us. They're going to kill us. And then the guy says, oh, my God, we have to get out of here. You know, and my dad could tell by when this person answers that he's got an Australian accent. And then my dad's like, I got money. So he's like, get in. And then my dad and his, like, 
friends all, you know, jump into this little plane. And as they're taking off, you know, on this runway, the communist soldiers who have been chasing them all night long um, in this, like, haze of green and black appear in the clearing. And they're, like, shooting at the plane, and this plane takes off just in time. Right? That story is amazing. That is the story God told us basically in the hallway at 8 p.m. Very casually. That story is why we invited her parents into the studio so we could hear it from them when we come back. Um, we're back. I snuck up behind you while you were listening to that commercial. <laughs> Hi, we're back. We're back. We're back in the studio with Gaz's parents. Okay. My name, my name is uh, now Ying Wang. Ying Wang. Okay, Ying but Wang. you go by Ying Wang. Ying Wang. Okay, Ying. now Ying Wang. Um, my name's uh, Peng Ho Wang. Ying and Pang showed up dressed so well, and I was in a flannel with dirty hair. I felt bad about myself. You know what? I should have. I still do, to this day, apologies to the Vangs. We got them set up, and they started at the beginning, which is a good place to start when you're gearing up for a big-time, cinematic, heroic story. First, Ying's childhood. Because my mom and dad is farmer, so uh, we live very f- far from the, uh, the city. Ying grew up in a small mountain village. The house was made by bamboo and uh, roofs and grass. There was no road, you know. You have to walk half day or a couple hours a day, you know, back and forth. At age seven, Ying's parents sent him away to attend school in another village. I'm crying a lot. I'm crying a lot, but I have no choice, you know. My dad said that uh, your mom and I is illiterate, so we want you to go to school and uh, read and write. Ying's family wanted so badly for him to have an education that they sent their seven-year-old to a foster family several villages away because education was everything. And Ying, he missed his parents so much. He was seven. He said, Dad, I, I miss seeing you. I miss mom and dad and my brother a lot. May I go back home with you? And my dad said, no. He's very proud. You know, he cried. He said, now my dreams come true because I have son who able to read and write. Ying became so dedicated to fulfilling his parents' dreams that when the communist army of the Patet Lao came to his elementary school when he was nine years old, this little boy and his teachers and fellow students 
fled to the jungle to survive. They were there for three months, eating one meal a day, living in huts they built themselves, until it was safe to go back to the school. The communists fell out of power in Laos in 1961. In 1968, Ying is 18 years old. He's just started university in the capital city of Vientiane. And one day, he runs into a classmate who's doing his homework. And he said that, Where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? I say, whoa, that, that guy must be crazy. What's that? That's maybe it's Cambodian language? Oh, he's not French either. No, no, I, I, I approach him. I say, what's kind of language that? He say, oh, anglais. I say, what's anglais? Oh, you know, anglais is American. I say, what's that? This is Indian? You know, anglais language. Because the French is called English anglais. Ying He's intrigued by this wacky new language, and he starts English classes for himself, three hours a day, in addition to his university classes. It's so much work, but he has so much ambition and so much drive. Now, through all of this, war had not ended. The Patet Lao, who had forced him into the jungle as a boy, they were still fighting to regain the country, with help from the North Vietnamese. After graduation, Ying was one of many Hmong people to join what was known as the Secret Army. They came from every village in town, many as soldiers on the front lines. Hard to find people who speak Lao-Fonali, French, and English. So they, they test me, and I wanted the best, you know, because when you speak Lao, you're able to speak Thai. So very hard to find people who speak more language. Because of his aptitude for languages, Ying became a lieutenant and then a captain. He had lots of soldiers working under him. He was given command of the Longcheng Airport near Vientiane. Because of my education, I was in charge of one of the busy airports in northern part of Laos, Longcheng. I was in charge there. You were in charge of the airport, airport. the busy airport. The really busy airport. Okay. Okay, and he's downplaying this. Like, at the time, this is one of the busiest airports in the world. So it's a big deal, or as I put it, a really busy airport. Then, in 1971, Ying received a special assignment. He was told to go over the border to Bangkok, the capital of Thailand, to meet with some Americans. Ying was given a list of items that the secret army needed to fight the communists. They bring a nice car, pick me up from the airport, and we go for lunch, and they say, okay, what kind of ammunition do you want? Okay, tell me. Tell us. Okay. And so what do you, you guys need? And what about ration, rice? Ying delivers his list to the Americans, and now his role in the war has suddenly changed. I've been working side by side with the U.S. government CIA officer. When you first make them, they talk nice, but when you get it to the end, they say, Mr. Vang is very, if you open this to the public, 
That's it. You, you just say you want to be killed while you say... Oh, they just do the gesture. Yeah. yeah. Just the gesture. <laughs> At these meetings... Another thing comes up, something Ying's general hadn't prepared him for, something his general didn't even know about. The Americans ask Ying to do work for them. Because here's the thing. The U.S. is not supposed to be in Laos. They're not supposed to be contributing to this part of the war. But the CIA is recruiting people like Ying to fight a secret war against the communists with the bodies and the work of the people of Laos. Now... If you are like me, you're thinking, but what specifically did the CIA ask Ying to do? Yes. Perhaps he can't maybe tell you what he was supposed to be doing for the CIA, too. Oh, that is a great point. <laughs> so weird that I haven't been called by the CIA to work for them. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's just what? Yeah, I'm just showing you, just showing you behind the scenes. <laughs> never claimed to be a genius. So Ying starts working for the CIA doing something. Don't ask what. He spends several more years at it and he's very successful. He meets Peng Her and they get married. And Ying starts to get attention, but not the good kind. One day he's approached by a Laotian investigator. Say, we want to talk to you, Mr. Wang, you know, Major Wang. I was a major on the military. And I say, what are you talking about that? And then, um, because I'm a luckiest, an Australian guy, he happened to know me very well because when I went to maybe the CIA in, 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 in Thailand, he was there many times. Oh, okay. Came to me and said, don't talk to don't. If you're here for a while, he's going to call you and then take you away. So, one of the intelligence officers who had been in Thailand when Ying first met with the CIA was an Australian guy, and he warned Ying about having contact with certain Laotian officials who might be looking to drag him off to a camp. That is very lucky. It also, doesn't it kind of feel like we're getting to the point of the story where Ying should be rescued by an Australian? Yeah? After escaping a work camp? It does, and we only have two hours of studio time, so we do kind of have to get to that part. How did you end up in the camp? I have a chance to visit the camp one time, close to the capital of Vientiane. Yeah, I did visit the camp one time. That's it. Okay, so at, at one point, were you in a camp? I have a chance to go there one time for a couple hours. Oh, you were only there for a couple hours? Couple hours. Um, I don't know. I'm, I might be. Um, okay. Um, can you tell me the story about the Australian with the airplane? You mean the, the, the Australian guy? The Australian guy. Who, 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 who instructed me not to talk to the guy? You mean, you, what do you mean? Um, I have a note here about an, like seeing an Australian with an airplane. Like, do I have that story wrong? <laughs> Dad, do you remember when you, when you told me a story about um, when you were... In, um, I think, mm-hmm. you, you went to, didn't you go to a re-education camp? No, I, as I said, you know, I under, they were in the process of it caught me. But because of the Australian guy, yeah, you know. So you would have gone to that camp if it weren't for this Australian guy saying, shh, don't talk to that guy. 
Yep. That's very lucky. Yeah. yeah. Okay. At this point, Ga's looking at Hans and I like, what? But this does happen in a lot of interviews. We go in thinking it's one thing and then it turns out to be another. So to recap, Ga's dad was never kidnapped by the Patetlao. He did flee them as a child and live in the jungle with his teachers for a few months. Ga's dad was never in a labor camp. He did visit one when he was working in the secret war with the CIA. Ga's dad wasn't rescued via plane by an Australian, but he did meet an Australian, again, while working with the CIA. And the Australian guy told him not to trust some other guys. Ying's whole family did leave Laos by airplane, but not after running through the jungle while being pursued by angry guards. They left as refugees from the airport Ying had run. This is Pang Hervang, Ga's mom. But we are light up to the door, waiting for the aircraft to come. And at the time that they come, I'm the first person that ran to the way they're supposed to get up to the plant. But I was carrying a car in my bag, and I also carry one of the flashlight in case we are in the dark or in the night we can use it and I don't I don't have any food and I and I have one um another clothing stuff that I can change when I got to the plan the people that stayed on my shoulder behind me and over car they already had eight people all all over us up to the plan already. And this bunch people all over the the air airport, they 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 surrounding the aircraft trying to get into the door and get into the um airplane. So the um pilots is very mad. Then they don't care about the people surrounding in the plane. They just, he just took off. He just took off the plane. I don't know how hurt the people in the bad and how scared they are and injury. The pilot took off the plane. So at that time, I I cry because none of my family will go and I don't know how I go gonna be end up in the Thailand site. Not survive there and no nobody there. I had nobody. It was now nineteen seventy five. Ga was only a few weeks old when they left. The family had fled to a refugee camp in Thailand. They saw disease and hunger, death. 
they were there for five years. And in 1980, they were relocated to the United States, to St. Paul, Minnesota, to a new home, far from home. Ga's father's story is still an incredible story. It's just not the story that Ga was expecting. So a few days after that interview with her parents, Ga came by the studio again to just process that. When my parents came in, which was, what, two days ago, and we had this taping, it really made me question everything I knew about them. I mean, there were some memories that I think we had in common. It's almost like looking at a piece of of the same puzzle, but from different perspectives, you know. Um, And then there were other stories that my dad had told you, Nora, that I had heard a completely different version of. And I swear on, like, my ancestors' like spirits that I thought those were the stories. The story of the escape especially had become a part of Ga. She had repeated it. She told it to everyone. She told it to us and we told it to you. And it was almost as like someone like like my dad himself kind of like just stopped the music. It shook like my understanding of like other memories that I thought I had with them and like the narrative of my parents or my grandparents that I thought that I knew. And now like for the last two days since I've heard this, I've like been replaying some of these stories that I've heard and wondering like what is real and what isn't real. And like, did I make some of it up myself? Maybe she made it up or maybe everything got ever heard about her parents' escape to America got all mixed up in her head with a dash of Tim O'Brien novels and a little bit of Apocalypse Now. And maybe her dad did change the story. And maybe that all sounds like not the biggest deal, but Ga isn't just thinking about herself. Ga's thinking about her kids and what she's going to pass on to them or what they'll remember of what she passes on to them. Like her own stories about being in the Bonvenai refugee camp in Thailand as a little girl, growing up in a poverty that her kids cannot imagine. There was a boy who I used to play with, and I was always very disgusted at him. You know how you have friends who you kind of like are your frenemies, even at a very young age. You kind of liked them, but you really hated them, and you put up with them. And so he lived near me. His name was Two, and I guess kind of put up with him. And the reason why he disgusted me was because he had, like, welts all over his body, and he was sickly, and he was starving. And he was starving to the point where, like, his little belly was like a little balloon. And he always looked dirty and disheveled. And I just was really disgusted with him, but he was okay. He was an okay playmate, so we used to play together. And one day I went over to um, Two's house because I hadn't seen him in a few days. Remember knocking on the door and his father opens and there are like just a host of people inside his house just like crying. And I said to his father, you know, is two around? Can he come out and play? And his father tells me two has gone to the garden and going to the garden is a euphemism for like dying. And so two was dead because he had died with the most recent outbreak of whatever disease that had taken out um, a lot of, like, the people in the refugee camp and often think about, too. And and just, like, 
how there were so many people like him that died and how I, I witnessed it. And and now I understand why I hated too so much, why I was disgusted with him. It was because he was a mirror of me. He was a reflection of me. I had the same belly. I had the same scars. You know, I mean, I remember we're in a refugee camp. There's absolutely no food. But yet I was going through the garbage looking for food, eating trash, and not telling my parents about it because they couldn't give me food. I felt like I had to survive on my own. And that's what Toon and I did. We dumpster died together. I was exactly like him. That's why I hated him so much. Because he was a reflection of me. I hope too, if you're out there, that you're okay. That story also shaped Ga. And she wants her kids to know those stories, for her stories to become their stories and their kids' stories. So they don't end up like me with a dumb story about a guy named Leo French insulting my grandpa's suit. But I feel like a responsibility to let them know about my experiences and my father's experiences and my great-grandfather's experiences, because that's their legacy and that's who they are. I'm telling them these stories now, and unfortunately it comes out like this. My daughter is frustrated because her tablet is not charging. And she's like crying and yelling and screaming because her tablet's not charging. And I'll go up to her and say, what? And this happened when she was five. And I would say, you know, when I was five years old, I was just trying to stay alive and I was just eating garbage and the whole works. And my husband would come and gently pat me on the back and say, honey, let's just try to get them through diapers or let's just try to get them to <laughs> kindergarten or like, I understand that was your experience and that's very important, but like, let's just focus on the now. They get to pick and choose. You know, I, but I just hope that they, they respect my mongness or their mongness. It's really important to me to make sure that my children know the stories Memories like these are like an intergenerational game of telephone. By the time a story gets past the person who lived it, it's been altered. Stories and memories change as we do, with distance, with perspective. Some because of the natural fading that occurs around the edges of even our most vivid life moments, and some with an intentional fading. little emotional Photoshop, a touch-up here, an airbrush there. Some memories change because we grow, and our view of them changes. So what does God do with the more cinematic version of her dad's story? The one she had loved and retold. There's no documentation Ga can point to to corroborate her version of her father's story, and really there's nothing her dad can point to either. It's just that it's his story. The facts, whatever they are, or his to share. And I feel like this is his story and he's sticking with it. I feel like I want to know more. It's not that I want to know like a different story, but it's that I know that he has so many more stories to tell me, to make me really understand like 
not only his experience, but like colonialism, you know, to, to understand poverty in a level that like I just can't see really here in the United States, which I did see a little bit of when I was in the refugee camp as a child. I mean, to understand war and death and obedience and loyalty. Like, you know, just for me to understand more, I hope that I can give this these stories to, to my children. I hope it will bring us closer in the end. This is why these stories are important. These stories belong to everyone. Look, I know that Leo French is a son of a gun who insulted my grandfather. And Ga knows what she knows about her family stories. I didn't know certain things. I thought I knew. And maybe I'll never really know, you know. In a way, isn't that like how family myths like happen? You you think you know the stories and then it's like, no, it's like it becomes something else and it becomes like a family myth. Yeah. Like this is the way that Hmong people are around their like their vendettas or like feuds. There's a family story and then it becomes a myth and then you're just told that you're supposed to hate that family. Like I still hear my dad and other people talking about like family feuds and how we don't like those people just because three generations ago they did something like wrong. You know, a few generations ago, a guy named Leo French insulted my grandfather's suit. And I mean, Hans and I did some digging. And by that, I mean, Hans emailed my mom and asked if she had any photos of my grandfather. And she provided one. It was a wedding photo. And it's my handsome grandfather in what I believe to be a high quality suit. It's hard to tell because the photo is very old. But my grandfather, my grandmother, and another man. Who's this man? Oh, I don't know. My grandpa wrote in that, you know, that old man writing where it's in all caps and all the letters are sort of boxy. People don't write like this anymore. Underneath that mystery man, it says Leo French. What does that mean? It just really felt like my mom ripped the lid off of something. What do I make of that? Like, so, I mean, Leo French is a guy who insulted my grandfather's suit, or maybe he's not. You know, my grandfather was a, a difficult person, not a perfect person. And who's to say that the Frenches don't have their own version of this story? Like, maybe Leo's grandkids are in some other studio recording their own podcast about Austin Clifford McInerney, who wore bad suits. They better not be doing that. I don't know. The point is, I don't know. There's not one single version of any story, not within my family, not within yours, not within Gaz. Maybe that's a good thing, because facts are different from the truth anyway. The facts of how Ga and her family got here change whether the story is told by Ga or Ying or by Peng Hervang, Ga's mom. We don't know what our kids or our kids' kids will remember. What will happen to the facts we share with them, we can just hope that whatever they remember, they know that the truth is this, that our stories shape us, and then we shape our stories. And however those stories end up, as long as they're still here, so are we. Okay, we're not quite done yet. Ga's mom, Peng Hervang, 
actually came to the Fitzgerald Theater for one of our live shows, and she had written an original song about her family's experience. Chi 
chi bò ca mơ sâu lò Trò khó tư ơ chung nó lũ tê chơm lò lò phân lợi thô chết Tập lò chờ chung lò trô tạ nó That was Pang Hervang, Ga's mom. She was live at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul with us in April. If you want to read the English translation of that song, you can find it on our Facebook page or on Instagram at TTFA Podcast. We made a video of that event, too, and have posted the performance of us doing this very episode live in front of an audience. And you can also find it on Facebook. Like, why would you want to watch a podcast live? I'll tell you why you'd want to watch this one live, because we have photos of the beautiful Vang family and me and Hans and Pang Her Vang in her outfit singing that song. Plus, we commissioned some amazing artwork from a local Hmong artist named Ozzy Zhang, and we'll tag her in our Instagram. I'm Nora McInerney, and this has been Terrible. Thanks for asking. Our producer is senior producer Hans Buto. Our project manager is Hannah Mikakras. Muna Shekhamar was our intern when we worked on the story. Muna, we miss you, and we hope you're having fun in Somalia, but also, like, I don't know, only come back. This is our last episode, maybe ever, I don't know. I don't, you know, people don't love that joke. Maybe it's not a joke. I don't know. The truth is out there. Um, <laughs> our theme music is by Joffrey Wilson. You should look him up. He's a beautiful man with a beautiful voice. We are a production of American Public Media. Uh, the acronym for that is APM. And um, I just want to, I think it's important for me to just share some important information that I've gleaned from my personal experiences. You have no business eating a clamshell of Chinese food and then trying to record a podcast. Okay? Nobody does.